Hey everyone, this is Mike from the brand new Dark Fortunes podcast, a show about the best or the worst pirates you've ever heard of on the high seas. And did I mention we're all playing adorable woodland creatures? Well, we are. Anyway, you're listening to Redemption. This is Redemption, an actual play podcast set in the Star Wars role-playing game system. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another bonus episode. I know what you're thinking. We just did a bonus episode. And in that episode, I promised a one-shot. I'm getting to that one-shot. I just uh, have really wanted to do different uh, chats like the last one and the one that you're about to hear. And I haven't really had a lot of time until now. So I'll be honest, I've been taking advantage of it. I've been sitting down and chatting with different people. And I really enjoyed the chat, and I really wanted to share it with everybody. Don't worry, the one-shot is coming up soon, and then we'll get back to our normal story. Until then, please enjoy this bonus episode. I got to sit down with an amazing gentleman, an awesome podcaster, and and a good friend. I'll let him introduce himself because, well, I'm not the greatest at introducing people. So, Adam, please take it away. You've already got me blushing. (laughs) Hello, everybody. This is Adam Beltane from the Force Majeure podcast. We are, so I'm going to jump straight in and uh, and humble brag my show a little bit. Um, So we are a Force and Destiny Star Wars podcast. We've been going about two and a half years now or so. Um, I'm the host and I'm one of the primary GMs. We, We have two kind of primary campaigns that run in Force Majeure. We have on the odd numbered seasons, um, I run a campaign called the Cold Fire Chronicles, which is starts off with a group of emergent force sensitives working on an imperial prison planet um, who realise they need to get out of there before an inquisitor comes for them. And our even numbered seasons, uh, Ed, who is one of my players, he runs a campaign called the Shadows of the Jedi campaign, which is much closer to an Edge of the Empire campaign than Force and Destiny in a lot of ways. It's set on a backwater planet right on the, the fringes of wild space that the rest of the galaxy is pretty much forgot, where secret Imperial plots and schemes are starting to ramp up and, and put danger for that whole sector of the galaxy. Uh, and I say primary GMs, we have a third GM. We're very lucky, actually. We kind of jump around. Uh, we've got uh, Mikey, who's an old friend of mine as well. and Mikey. GMs are interlude seasons and our one shots and those kind of things to just break up the the campaigns a little bit and and keep things fresh. But yes, so that's that's me and um nice. I'm really I'll, I'm really really grateful to be here because oh. your show is one of the two reasons why I actually got into podcasting in the first place. Thanks for joining. It's kind of a conversation I've always wanted to have. You know, here I am in the in the US live in the Midwest, kind of a conservative area. I've always wanted to talk to somebody you know, from a, another part of the world and just kind of get an idea of how gaming is over there, how you started, and kind of just compare some experiences. And for all I know, maybe we have the same experiences, but I've always been curious. So how did you get started gaming? So I started gaming a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> uh, I was very young. Um, we started to get in at my local bookshop fighting fantasy books, which was like choose your own adventure. My dad was a big Lord of the Rings fan and my gran was quite into fantasy as well. So they'd always kind of, I was kind of aware of, of the concept of like heroic fantasy and sci-fi and that sort of stuff. Uh, my uncle was a big reader of Dune. 
So I kind of knew that area, but I was still a bit too young to really tackle them. But the fighting fantasy books were about my kind of speed when I was, I was about six, six and a half thereabouts. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, my oldest friend, um, a chap called Stuart, he, I've known him like 30 odd years and he's got a number of older brothers and they'd started playing D&D first edition about that period of time. And when I got to about seven or eight, we got invited to play. So we started playing, yeah, D&D, yeah, when I was about seven or eight, going back about 30 years now. And then for my 10th birthday, I basically got the second edition advanced D&D stuff. Um, that, that was my big birthday present, the player's handbook, the Dungeon Master. Dungeon Master's Guide, and not the Monster's Manual. It was the Monster's Compendium. Ah. You know the big kind of yep. clip um, clip folder that you you bought the plug-in bits for. That was well good. Uh, I have one, and that's when I, oh, I mine's still at my parents. It's some. It's like the last few bits that are still at my folks. I've moved out like twelve years ago, but they still have some of my gaming stuff there because my loft is full and all my bookcases are full, and you know I'm not letting it go anywhere else. That's my stuff. I pack right my gaming stuff. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I started off on AD&D a long time back and I had a couple of like-minded friends that I got into it th- through like Hero Quest oh, yes. um, and Space Crusade and then Games Workshop and they were big miniature painters and, and war gamers, but I managed to get them into like tabletop gaming through that gateway and they got me into miniatures gaming in the same kind of way. Then we got into LARP, um, live action role playing. I started when I was about 12 or 13, but I was too young for it then and went back to it when I was about 18. And in between that kind of period of time, um, we all kind of splintered what games we were running. So we all kind of ran and played Dungeons and Dragons, but like I got really into Storyteller. So I was running Werewolf the Apocalypse. That was my big game. And one of my other friends ran Vampire and another one of my friends ran Wraith. Um, I also ran Cyberpunk 2020. Another one of my friends ran the West End game Star Wars, and that was the first time I ever played a Star Wars game. But then I didn't go near it for about 25 years or so, um, because we kind of group shifted and moved around and that sort of... Sorry, bang my mic. No, you're good. So groups kind of shifted and moved around, and, and what we were playing kind of changed. I started working in a model shop and took over the role-playing games department because the other people that worked there just didn't get it. Um, and I milked that staff discount. Oh, did I milk that staff discount? And I started there when Third Ed first came out. Okay. So I got into Third Ed and then into Pathfinder and Call of Cthulhu and Star- uh, Spycraft and Shadowrun and all the, that sort of stuff then. Uh, and again, we kind of jumped around like who was running what and, and what games we were playing. I was quite lucky, and I've always been quite lucky that most of my gaming groups, we've got a really good player to GM ratio. Like nearly everyone that I play with also will take their term in the GM's chair to give us a chance. And we all kind of run different systems. So that was kind of how I got into it really. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really play Star Wars or anything up until I was getting very, we, we were playing an awful lot of Pathfinder and that was what we pretty much ended up. That was our core game really. Cause when White Wolf closed down the original World of Darkness lines, None of us really got into Chronicles of Darkness. Um, I really like Changeling the, uh, Changeling the Lost, but it's a game that you've really got to kind of pick your players for because it touches on a, a lot of dark themes, more so than the ones. And yep. 
I was becoming more aware that I wasn't like a teenager and some of the stuff that we got away with then, you know, the themes we were then just wasn't, it didn't sit that comfortably oh, for sure. as we were getting on a bit. You've grown out um, of the teenager, almost angsty immaturity and want to get a more mature game. Yeah, yeah. And we just ended up mostly playing Pathfinder for, that was our go-to game for absolutely ages. That and 13th Age, which by the way is a phenomenal system. I've played it. And I was getting really frustrated with Pathfinder because more and more I found that if I wasn't prepared to put literal hours of work into getting system mastery, I just couldn't keep up with the challenges, especially when some of the players that we played with were really into it and had that system mastery. And the GM was really massively heavily into it and had all the source books and went on all the character optimization boards and that sort of stuff. So like the baseline for the party and the baseline for the challenges we were facing was much higher than what I could bash together. And I don't like just Googling Pathfinder knife rogue build because it just struck me as a bit cheating. You know, if I'm building a character, I want to build my character. I'm the same way. I understand. I'm the guy that comes to the table with uh, four pages of backstory and concepts and personality and then notes about the mechanics and then have to fit the mechanics in. And I'm the guy that's always like, can we take this yeah, yeah. rule and make it do this? And people are like, that's not what it's designed to do. And I'm like, eh, but it's cool. Oh, yeah. you know? I've had a couple of conflicts with GMs because of that. Um, and I, that was one of the other big problems. I found it just increasingly restrictive and I was getting more and more into like narrative play. I'm really flighty. I jump from system to system. And when I find a system I like, I go really hard, like almost obsessively hard on it for a while until the next butterfly catches my attention. I go leaping off after that one through the flowers. And I picked up a load of fate books from a bundle of holding. And that really it was so different to anything we'd played like ever. That really heavy narrative focus over the rules. And that really appealed to me. Um, and I was trying to find out how the hell you played it, though, because it is not an easy system to grok. It really isn't. I agree. Um, and I hadn't done any podcasts barring Welcome to Night Vale. That was like my, that was like the only podcast I, I listened to, really. I hadn't really got into the whole scene. And for looking out how to play that, I found Not Another Tavern. Okay. And then from Not Another Tavern, I found Dice for Brains. And from Dice for Brains, I found Redemption. And that system the the star wars narrative dice system which i know we'll probably come on to like in more detail later on when i've stopped waffling quite so much just blew me away the possibilities so yeah i fell very very hard for star wars and for um genesis and it got me back into the the whole fandom really mm-hmm. what's funny is i never played a star wars system until fantasy flight games i just never really had a desire to jump into that mm. And we tried it out, and the first time I played it, I wasn't sold. Mostly because I think we didn't understand the dice. Yeah. And I had a similar path that you did with a lot of the Pathfinder and third edition and character optimization problems. So when you get into Fantasy Flight games, it's much harder to make an optimized character right off the bat. Mm. Yeah. You have to spend. Yeah, very much so. You got to spend time building that character up. And I think at first it was very confusing to fail but have the advantages yes very much so it doesn't make sense i i missed next person's turn or succeed but still have a cost like that blew my mind to begin with which is funny because now i can't imagine playing a system that doesn't do that yeah i run a lot of fifth ed D at the moment because it is a game that i can just pick up and run without having to think too much about it mm-hmm. and that 
binary success or fail now, I, I'm like, no, no, I need more. I need more. Where are my advantages? <laughs> Where are my threats? What's going on here? Yes. Um, it's so weird. Yeah, going back to like a binary success or fail. Uh, the one that I've really found as well is initiative. Mm-hmm. I really like the tactical play that the FFG Star Wars brings where you can move your slots up or down. And I've tried introducing that in some of my fifth ed games to um, mixed reception, shall we say. I like it because it allows the players to determine whose moment it is in that combat. So if you're playing the the Wookiee with the big axe and here comes the big bad guy and you know he's about dead, why don't you go again? Like your character's designed to kill things. My character may be the charming one, so... I'm going to go ahead and let you get the kill so I don't have to take that away from what your character should be doing. Yeah, it lets each character get their chance to shine yeah. and get their big moment. I love that. It's interesting because you said that you know your parents and friends were into role-playing as an early, or I should say the, mm. kind of the culture, I'll call it, early. Yeah. I had the opposite. I grew up in a real small town uh, in the Midwest, I mean, I graduated with 70 people. Not a big, big class. Mm. Most everybody liked to hunt and fish and drink beer and other, what we call redneck things. (laughs) So for me, I grew up, I also grew up an only child and I spent a lot of time reading Dragonlance books and you mentioned the choose your own adventure books. I started reading those when I was six. I still have all of them. Most of mine were originally the Transformers ones. Oh, we never got those over here. Oh. Or I never saw them. They were fun because you got to be, you know, determine what the Autobots were going to do and how it was going to go. And I used to just, you know, my nearest neighbor was three and a half miles away. So for me, mom and dad would say, ah, go play. Uh, Who, with, and where? Yeah. (laughs) The nearest neighbors are three and a half miles away and they're 60 and they Mm -hmm. they own a Christmas tree farm. (laughs) So I used to just go out back and pick up sticks and pretend I was, you know, battling you know, whoever, goblins and saving the princess. Uh, Conan was one of my favorite movies when I was younger. Mm. Conan and Willow and uh, yes. Red Sonia and then Deathstalker and some other really bad ones. But <laughs> Beastmaster. I loved Beastmaster. Still do. And then I think I was about 14, 15. A mm. friend of mine who was a couple years older said that his sister moved back in town with her new husband. And he wants to play some games. And I was like, oh, sure, whatever. And we showed up at his house and sat down. And he pulls out the Red Box D&D beginner set. Wow. And we make up two characters each because he wants to teach us just the concept. And I got a fighter and a magician. And we started our little adventure. And then we did similar to what you were talking about. We played a bunch of different systems. We did play Hero Quest. I actually have an old copy of Hero Quest that I've played with my kid. He's too old now. It bores him now. But when he was five, six, it was cool. But now he just laughs. It's still cool, Chris. It's still cool. Uh, <laughs> I still play it, but he won't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, you know, I went through high school and I, I'll ask this. Well, sort of. When I played in high school, it was we played in James's place with the curtain shut, the door shut. It was just me, James, and Kurt. Then once we got to school, Kurt and I, yeah, hey, what's up? How you doing? Cool. Didn't talk about it. Like this was something we did 
kind of behind the curtain, so to speak, because, well, in our high school, it wasn't popular. It wasn't really accepted because this is, you know, I'm, I'm a little older than most. So this is late eighties, early nineties. So here we have the satanic panic as they yeah, yeah. refer to it. So for us, it was a lot of, we never talk about it. We game, we have a great time, but then when we separate, it was almost a little lonely in a way. Because we used to really want to talk about it and play, but we couldn't. And then when I got to college, I remember going to, they call it Campus Life Night. Mm. It's where all the clubs show up and you, they try to recruit people. And I remember this very clearly, walking around 1993, and I'm standing there and a fraternity is trying to talk me into joining. And they're talking about all the, the great parties they're going to have and all the people they're going to introduce me to. I remember seeing this little booth with a tall balding guy and this cute little redheaded girl that was standing there and people would walk up and just wave and walk away quickly mm. and i was intrigued because they had this little handmade sign that just said alternative realities and i walked up and I'm like all right i'm curious what is it and the tall guy looks at me and goes oh we're a role-playing group we play D and and all these other games and i looked at him i go hey whoa you know we're out in public <laughs> you know we're not i don't know if we're supposed to be saying this real loud <laughs> and he's like no 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 it's cool and i ended up talking to them for about two hours i ignored every other group that was there and just talked to them and ended up joining up with them and that's about the time i think here things started changing in the 90s yeah. they started getting away from the whole it's, it's a bad horrible thing it was a couple years later i started larping i started doing the heavy weapon fighting with a group running around we don't use a lot of magic it's mostly just Padded weapons hit each other. Yeah. Oh, you got me. Yay. Start over. It's funny because we've had some similar experiences. Did you guys have the same kind of satanic panic? Um, I mean, you're younger than I am, so I don't know how yeah, you got into that. Not that I remember, but yeah, I am a bit younger than you. And also, and I think this is another one of the big kind of cultural things, we're not that performatively religious, if you get what I mean. And I don't mean that to sound... Mm -hmm in any way denigratory because it's not but yeah we're a bit more reserved with that sort of stuff like i mean i was raised catholic but mm -hmm. the, the, the protestants church of england is is obviously a, is our one of our biggest religions over here and there they never really went in for the hellfire and brimstone kind of side of things that i or certainly that i don't remember and i went to a catholic school and like my teachers knew that i played dnd &D, and they didn't care at all we did talk about it. it. It wasn't such a an ostracizing thing when I was at school, but I am a chunky, out of shape. I was very asthmatic as a kid, and I hate football um, or soccer. Uh, I I hate it because I couldn't play it because I couldn't run. Mm -hmm. That was a target on my back when I was a kid. Um, all the way through high school, that was a target on my back. So really, the fact that I preferred to read and play D&D, it didn't make me any less of a target than the, you know, it was all rolled into the one, mm -hmm. you don't like sports, therefore, like no matter what else you are into, it doesn't really matter. So yeah, I, I was a bit loud and proud about it because I'm like, what are you going to do? Beat me up more? Meh, whatevs. But as a consequence, I was, I was an avid reader. I still am an avid reader. And up until like my last year in high school, we didn't have we had a lot of school library, but we didn't have a librarian. So it kind of went to people that were interested in it to to help run it, and I got into that quite 
quickly because I saw my niche, really. Okay. I helped with the ordering of books, which was amazing. We had like the best sci-fi fantasy and horror selection of any high school. <laughs> of course, these the weird because like our high school isn't the same as because your high school I think is what our college is. So our high school is age eleven through sixteen. Really? Yeah. And ours is fourteen through eighteen. Yeah, our college is sixteen, well, seventeen and eighteen, and then our university is like eighteen and up. So. Fascinating. When I say high school, yeah, I mean, it started off the age range I'm talking about, 11 to 16. Um, But yeah, we had a really well-stocked sci-fi, fantasy, and and horror library. Um, And because I was involved in that, and then when the librarian did come in my last year, I got on really well with her because she was also an avid reader. She also quite liked sci-fi, fantasy. So we just used the library. There was like a meeting room in the back there that was supposed to be for like teacher conferences that never went on. So we just used that. (laughs) <laughs> and played there like every dinner time. That would have been nice. Me, I had to go to a bookstore to special order any books I wanted. So like I said, the Dragonlance books, I was big into Dark Sun. Uh, I liked some of the Ravenloft books mm. that they wrote, the novels. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I used to have to go there and special order them, and it would take her two to three weeks to get them in, and then she'd always have to laugh. She's like, you know, it's almost not worth it for me <laughs> to order these books because you're only paying you know, the 10 bucks a book or whatever it was, but she would not order the D and D or role-playing books, mm. only novels. Yeah. So for me to get a role-playing book, I had to drive almost an hour away to a hobby shop Yeah. that would sell trains and models. And they had a small section in the back. Yeah. That's where I used to work. And, and our section was, was like, that it was very small until I came over there and, and got, cause from that I span out a gaming club. Um, at one of our locals, I'm a big city boy and always have been. Um, and like we used to drink heavily at a number of the local pubs. And one of those local pubs had like an upstairs function room. And every Tuesday night, I would book it. I would pay for that room. I would collect subs from everyone that came. And I'd have like 40 or 50 people every Tuesday night, three or four hours in the pub. And the pub was happy because we all drank. Um, and they got the room paid for. And we'd run five to six player groups on a six to eight week on a rotor uh, of different systems and different GMs. And you just signed up in advance. And so we end up playing with loads of different people, loads of different systems. And sometimes you went, you, you kind of found yourself falling at the same groups when you found people that liked the same kind of games that you did and that you clicked with. But at my university, we did have a game society, but I didn't really get involved with it because I still lived at home and commuted over to my university because it was only about an hour away. Mm. And at college, like loads of my mates still lived nearby. So I played with them instead rather than getting involved in either the clubs. And we don't really have like fraternities or like the, the big kind of society. Well, we do have like the societies, but they're more university based. So, um, interesting. I had a local library as well that my gran had primed because she got me, I mean, my first big read, even before Dragonlance was David Gemmel. I love David Gemmel. Then I got into Dragonlance and that sort of stuff. But my gran, um, lived near my library and it was on first name terms. My, my parents are still on first name terms with the same librarians. I've worked there for like 40 years. They still ask after me um, and they get all my old books when I finish reading. Wow. But she primed the pump. So she'd go in and go, I would like to order, please, in the these new three David Gemmel books, these um, Stephen King. I want this, uh, the Dragonlance Chronicles, please. I would like, they'd only do novels, but you know, um, I want these Frank Herbert. I want these um, 
Terry Brooks. I want these David Eddings, please. And when I'm done with them, my grandson will come in. He'll be in in a week and he'll have them. And when he's done, his friend will come in and have them. So every single one was guaranteed at least three readers. So my library didn't care. That was fine. So yeah, we were quite lucky. And we had quite a lot of gaming stores. But again, being, because I grew up in Salford, which is pretty substantial. And then okay. right on the borders of, Great, of, of Manchester Town Centre, which is huge. So we had Waterstones, which I don't know if you've heard of over there. I suppose it's like your Barnes and Noble. It's a big, it's a big bookseller. Okay. But they have, um, they didn't really sell much in the way of role playing stuff back then. But they would carry the TSR novels. Okay. We had Swinton Models and Hobbies, which was a model shop, a hobby shop like you used to go to, which is where I mostly got my stuff from. And they were the only place that actually sold dice. Other places you could get the the, the rule books from, but you could only get dice from Models and Hobbies. Or mail order, uh, which was very, very odd. You sit there eagerly waiting a letter coming through with a pack of badly cast, bright blue plastic polyhedrals that would never roll right. <laughs> yeah, I, we never even had mail order stuff. I'm sure I could have. I just never looked into it. As a kid, I was happy with the few books I had because I could do what I wanted with them. Yeah. And the group I had would, you know, we were pretty easy with the rules and modifying yeah, things yeah. house rule central in high school we actually tried to write our own game system a couple times we had this whole percentile based system that was classless but it was your percentage that you would put into different things gave you different abilities and yeah, yeah. it was way more complicated than it needed to be like your character sheet would be four pages long if you wanted it wanted it to be it was that's traditional, though. You have to, every time you start trying to write your own game, you have to make it needlessly complicated. Yeah. I tried about three times, and every single one of them was unplayably bad for exactly that reason. So in the end, we just settled to have a, a nice big Thaco chart so we could work out what the hell we need to roll on a D20, and that was good enough for us in the end. That was, that was <laughs> our, our main contribution by that point. <laughs> Thaco. That is the one concept I'm glad they got rid of. That was so awkward to try to figure out. Yeah, we just did a big old grid that went from AC minus 10 to 10 and you're to hit from like 0 to 20 and just like Thaco down the middle in a highlighted box. This is what you need to work because I, I just, uh, I was so good at math though. I'm, I'm rubbish now, but back then, back then, oh, yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> oh, back then I could roll dice and be like, I hit AC this. People be like, oh, okay, you hit or don't hit. Like it was. Yeah, now I'm not sure I could do that quick. Now I'd probably have to have a chart up in front of me, but I don't get to do that much math day to day. That's interesting because you had a, you know, being a, in a big city, a different experience than I did with the small city conservative area. It's, it's neat to me. What are some of the more popular systems over there right now? Like I know D&D and Pathfinder are the biggest ones here. Are they the biggest ones over there? Yeah, probably. D&D um, has always been a big um, beast. I think it's, I think it's because it was the first, and it's always had the most money. Yeah, and to be honest, like I got frustrated with Third Ed, and then went on to Pathfinder, which which fixed some of the problems I had with Third Ed and Three Point Five. But my main thing that annoyed me with Third Ed was I just got the full run and was getting my head around it, and they brought out Three Point Five, and I'm like, great, now I have to rebuy all of these extremely <laughs> similar books. Cool, grand, loving that, and then I. I really liked 4th Ed, and I like how a lot of the things I liked most about 4th Ed have been taken on by 
13th Age and some other games. So your backgrounds being a lot more abstract, I really like. Um, yep. I liked how you multiclassed because it just made things so much easier for me. And Pathfinder 2nd Edition has taken that effectively, where you okay. you spend your class feet to buy into another class effectively. You lose the depth in your own class, but for breadth of options. Okay. And I found that so much easier to get my head around how that all kind of linked in. And I found it generally made it a little bit more balanced. But yeah, those two are the big ones. Now, it's a bit hard to say because for like the last 12 or 13 years, since like the model shop closed and I moved on and got another job, um, and then we got a, we've got we got a massive gaming store open up in Manchester called Fanboy 3, which opened up about the time that my gaming club, in fact, it's the reason my gaming club folded, because they were like play in store. And rather than giving Adam some money for subs, which he will then spend any excess on cider, probably, <laughs> you can get it a store credit for your GM. Half of whatever you pay goes to store credit for your GM, which then can go to buy more books and get more games. And it's a genius idea. Um, and I'm all favour for it and it's a really good shop run by really good people but about that time just because like i moved on and and my club folded and that sort of thing i'd started larping and was that was taking up a lot of my time and and ended up running several laps about that time so my tabletop gaming group just contracted and contracted and contracted until i've been basically playing with the same people for like the last 10 years or so with a couple there's like a couple of extra people that I don't want to say add-ons because that sounds disrespectful, but they're not in the core group. But like sometimes I will run with two of my regular players and these two new people that I I play with on a less frequent basis and and that sort of thing. So they're floating in and out. Yeah, and I I'm running like as per usual out five different games at the moment. And though there's a core uh, of regulars in that, there are different players that kind of I like, tag in deliberately, really, so that I'm playing with some different people, but. Because of that, we've tended to stick with the same system. So I know what's popular for our group, okay. but I'm not sure exactly how widely reflective that is of, of UK gaming as a whole, unfortunately. From talking to like my local gaming store and some of my other mates, Pathfinder's still very popular. D&D's, very, like, again, really popular. Uh, Gumshoe's pretty popular. I know quite a lot of people that play Gumshoe. Mm-hmm. I've been with one gaming group that's been playing Rogue Trader for six years, um, but I think we're in the minority there for Rogue Trader because the um, the Fantasy Flight Warhammer 40k games are an interesting concept, but the system is not a good system. It's terrible. I've never played it. Oh, it's 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 very hard in Rogue Trader to be a trader, and I can't help but think that that's missing at least some of the point. But again, that's an old system it's- now. It's in the name. Yeah. You'd think it'd be the easiest. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, 13th Age still seems fairly popular. And the White Wolf stuff still kind of sees a bit of a resurgence as well. But the two main ones are, are D&D and Pathfinder. And I think the main reason for that is because you've got Pathfinder Society Organized Play and you've got DM, D&D's Adventurers League Organized Play. So for a gaming store, they're really easy to get people in and playing and find GMs for and there's benefits for doing it. and. So I think that that kind of canny marketing, and that's also why I think there's some games out there that aren't doing anywhere near as well as they deserve to do. I am a massive fan of the Green Ronin's Age system, both Dragon Age and Fantasy Age. I love them to bits. 
Okay. But yeah. they really suffered from terrible marketing, from a lack of investment, and just the only people I know that play Dragon Age or Fantasy Age are people that I've got playing Dragon Age and Fantasy Age. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone else that buys those books. And it's a real shame. It's a great system, but it's just all of their verve seem to go into Mutants and Masterminds, which is well known. I get it's a flagship brand, but there are other small companies out there that are still able to diversify and push what they're doing, like um, Evil Hat. Yep. To an extent, like Fantasy Flight Games, their RPG division is a fraction of their board game division. But up until they had their wobble and, and it all went a bit sideways recently, they were still okay at promoting L5R and, and Star Wars. But again, there was nowhere near the level of investment and marketing and advertising and support for GMs and support for gaming stores to run and push their product compared to what Paizo and Hasbro were, were pumping out there. It might be the same reason... I have a friend who runs a game store and I asked him some questions about how that all works. Mm. And a lot of those little companies can't afford to sell books to game stores because of how much Amazon is taking away. Yeah. Like my friend who runs a game store said, why are you going to come in and buy a book from me for 50 bucks when you can go on Amazon right now and buy it for 40? Yeah. The only ones that I find really hits me like that are the D&D ones because mm-hmm. the price difference is so massive between um, Amazon and my gaming store. But I still go to my gaming store and pay that little bit extra because they're my gaming store, you know. And that's, that's what his thing is, is. I was down there running games and helping trying to build a gaming group with him. And his big thing is his cost on a lot of, a lot of those books is $40. So for him to buy it for the store is the same as what I can pay on Amazon, but he has to make money on it. So he's got to upcharge it. The only way he can do that is by getting people in the door and getting that loyalty base. Yeah. Uh, There was more stuff that I was working with him. Like, great. If the books aren't going to make you money, let's work on getting a snack area. Let's work on the little things around it. Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic are what keeps my uh, um, friendly local gaming store mostly afloat. That's exactly what his store became, pretty much, is Magic. And that, I don't want to say it bothered him, but that's not where he wanted his vision of the store to be. You know, he runs a lot of Magic tournaments and stuff like that, but he really wanted a gaming store that tonight is D&D, tomorrow is Magic, the next day is Star Wars. Like That rotating kind of games so people could come in and experience different things i mean uh, we're quite lucky with fanboy 3 because they've been around long enough and have just about made enough money they they had to move premises and where they ended up getting has two floors so the basement is for the card gamers Mm. and everybody is much happier about that and that means that the shop floor which is still pretty sizable that's where they run they have board game nights. They oddly, I think the key forge. They they do key forge, but I think that's upstairs on the shop floor rather than downstairs with like the magic and the Yu Gi Oh and the the Pokemon stuff. Mm-hmm. But they do like Shadows of Brimstone, and they do like the yeah some of the big board game nights, Imperial Assault there, and they do like Pathfinder Society and Adventurers League, and you can still just come in and book a table and run a game there as well. I tend not to because now I have a house. Yeah, me too. Most of the people I game with are close by, so they just come round to mine and we have many couches, many comfortable soft couches and a big TV that I can Chromecast maps to. 
So, and Sirenscape. I have Sirenscape here, which, you know, is a fun... Oh, I love Sirenscape so much. That and tabletop audio are what makes my games. I love them. That sounds like most of the games are real similar. Mm. I was just getting the impression, uh, reading on some online stuff, that in, in Europe as a whole, there was a big push towards very rules-light, story-driven uh, games, and not so much the D&D and Pathfinder. Yeah, I think there's, there is probably a, an amount of that. Like I say, I'm a bit limited because my my gaming group is is a bit static. I think one of the, the things with, that I quite like about D&D is you can kind of make it as rules-light as you want. I, much like yourself, I don't make people roll dice unless there is relevant Unless failure is relevant. Correct. Or interesting. That's yeah. how I like to word it too. Like yeah. I usually tell people, if that's what your character is designed to do and you're not under stress or there's no real reason for you to fail, you're going to succeed. Mm. Like I, I don't see why the rogue who has all day to pick the lock on the front door isn't going to succeed eventually. Yeah. So how long does it take you to do it? That's all I usually ask. But now you've got archers shooting at you and a dragon running up. Okay, you got to get this done yeah. now. So now it's interesting or you could fail, could have a cost to it. Now you're going to roll. Yeah. That's kind of my philosophy. Yeah, give me consequences. Make it fun. I, I've just started playing Blades in the Dark finally, um, which okay. I also got into through another podcast because that's how I find my games these days. Um, me too. That's a really fun system. I really like the fact that consequences are baked very heavily into that game. And I know that some of my friends that have played it don't like that. They are still very much the, no, if I'm succeeding, I want to succeed. And I'm like, no, consequences make it fun to succeed, but with a threat is far more fun than just a flat success. Have I taught you nothing? <laughs> Pick up the funny dice. I think that's the hard part of game mastering is reading your table and knowing when is it okay to make failure a little interesting versus, okay, you've succeeded. I can tell you really wanted to succeed, so you do it. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Describe how it looks. Well, it's like you were saying before, isn't it? Letting, making sure your players get a chance to shine either as a player or as a GM. I'm a big believer that you should be a cheerleader for your players, which is a phrase that, it's a phrase that really resonates with me. And it's not one I found until I really started getting involved in the podcast scene. Because... Yes. My Twitter life, because I live on Twitter, Facebook is a horrible poisonous trash fire, uh, and I hate it so very much. I agree. But my Twitter life was originally just mates. And then I kind of found a few podcasts and started following those, and then I started following the people in those shows. And from there, I found other gamers from across the world. And that concept of being a cheerleader to your players is something I've always tried to be but I'd never seen it written down mm -hmm. in such a succinct and understandable way. Whereas going back to differences kind of here and, and, and where you are, mm -hmm. it seems certainly, again, I might be biased because I'm f like the last three or four years in, in the, the wider kind of worldwide gaming community. It seems to have been a concept that was taken up much earlier from my American and Canadian friends than it was for my UK friends. Okay. I know, I know Dungeon World, when that system came out, I think a real big impact on a lot of people over here. Uh, I mean, I bought it just to read it. I've run it a handful of times. 
but I love how they explain how to run a game. Paraphrasing, I believe it's uh, be a fan of your players, give them obstacles to succeed, or obstacles to make things interesting. But they never say they don't. They don't try to use the word failure. It's always your. No matter what the dice are, the story is evolving, so you're yeah. always succeeding. Is kind of the way you have to think about it. Obviously, yeah. I'm paraphrasing a whole bunch of stuff down to a, a couple sentences, but. Well, I missed the Power by the Apocalypse kind of boom, really. I came really late to that. Again, I think because I was a bit blinkered or a bit restricted in, in what I was seeing. Because outside of a couple of games, the only other system that I really knew a lot of people that played was Gumshoe. Okay. And that's a great game, but I cannot understand how I run it. <laughs> I wing it far too much and far too hard to be able to plot that level of clues. But yeah, I'd missed the, the Dungeon World and the Power by the Apocalypse stuff until Stuart, again, who who seems to be my um, kind of trailblazer for a lot of stuff. He found Apocalypse World rather than Dungeon World and then found Dungeon World through that okay. and passed me that over. But by that point, I'd already, I'd already pretty much started running the show. So yeah, it's and I still never run or played a Power by the Apocalypse game. I've got Monster of the Week, okay. but... I want to play before I run mm-hmm. because I don't think I can quite get my head around how it works. It took me a minute. The first time I played it was at a small little convention and I just sat down at the table and they explained the rules. And the first time I rolled dice, I rolled the whole eight, which is you succeed, but at a cost. Yeah. And the game master's like, so what's the cost? I'm like, uh, I, what do you mean? Yeah. Like I literally looked at him like, I don't understand. He's like, okay. And also, why are you asking me? Yeah. There's a list that kind of goes through. Like, if you're shooting a bow, you can mark off an ammo or you miss or you expose yourself to getting hit type things. The hard one for that, in my opinion, running the game is you don't ever roll dice as the game master. Yeah. I struggle with that as new with Numenera. I'm like, no, I like rolling dice. I deserve that fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, to me, it's you rolled a hit, but you miss, and you rolled at the part where you're supposed to take damage. Now I have to say, okay, Adam, roll your damage. Mm. Which at first I was like, I don't like that. But then I watched the player actually pick up the dice and go, oh, please roll low, please roll low. And I realized the genius in the fact that you just added tension to that moment. Mm. Yeah. Because now they're in control of it, and they roll the dice, and they're like, yes, I rolled lower. Ah, crap. I rolled high. Oh no. And the the only time I didn't want a 12. <laughs> yeah. So it, it took me a few times to really wrap my head around it. I do like the system. I just, it's almost too rules light. Yeah. If that makes sense. I found that with Fate, actually, uh, and especially Fate Accelerated. I found a bit too much fluff to the crunch. I like a, just a little bit more structure for me. I've only played Fate a handful of times, and every time I play it, I very quickly realize it's all about how I word things, Yes, not so much how I roll the dice. And once I click in my head, once I realize what buttons to push for the Game Master, I quickly find I'm not really failing at things. Yeah, that was one of the problems. I I started off running, I was running the Iron Gods Pathfinder Adventure Path, which I was converting on the fly into Fate Accelerated because I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, 
And I really found that trying to use Fate Accelerated that, yeah, it was all about wording. And because I was playing with people that I've been playing with for decades nearly, they knew exactly how to word things to get their best stat up. It wasn't cheating, but it was, yeah, they knew how to lean into their character to to play to their strengths, which I, I get is the point. And then I moved it into normal fate to try and give a bit more granularity. But then I found that when they were doing the thing they were good at, they succeeded so hard that, again, I was like, I don't know how to interpret that many levels of success. I just, I just don't. No, no, yeah. no. I need to dial that back a bit. It's great for one shots though. Kaiju, uh, Kaiju Incorporated, which is one of the fate accelerated variants that's very Pacific Rim. That is very, very fun to run kind of for a couple of hour long one shot silliness. I've, I've had a lot of fun with that. But That'd be fun. I miss the old Battletech game where you just got to shoot giant robots at giant robots. I haven't played that in a long time. I, I only played it once and the GM took against me and it was not a fun gaming experience it is pretty much player versus player who can shoot their robot the best which it's fun if you have the right group because the group i used to play with like i would design my mech you would design yours Mm. we'd fight it out and at the end we would sit down and go okay where did my build go wrong or where did my build go right and it became a game of how do we build the best mechs and then fight each other I had a different experience. Well, the game he ran, I really liked the concept of because he was running both MechWarrior and Battletech. Mm-hmm. So he was running MechWarrior up until the point we got in the mechs. Yep. We were a we were a task force group. I can't remember exactly the the, the scenario, but yeah, he just really took against me. So it, it didn't. I, I left that group fairly quickly. Yeah. Which is a weird one actually because I'm very much more a fantasy person than a sci-fi person. It's another reason why I didn't really play much Star Wars. I never got into Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica or Stargate. And I think part of the problem was when I was playing fantasy games, the groups worked. But when I was trying to get into sci-fi, I played Traveller with a GM that took against me and also expected me the first time I played it to to know the full backstory of the game and then punish me because I didn't. Mm. So yeah, maybe didn't take against, but he was a very, he's also a very old school, very oppositional style GM. So that really turned me off Traveller. And then I had like those experiences with Mech Warrior. I had a similar one with Shadowrun, which annoyed me because Shadowrun is, is fantasy, but yeah. I had bad experiences with that. Whereas I didn't with Cyberpunk, which is why I kind of gravitate more towards Cyberpunk than, than Shadowrun. Whereas with D&D and like D&D fantasy alike variants. I never had any of those kind of problems. I never ran into too many of the Game Master versus Players GMs. Most of the GMs I ever got to play under were very much, let's all have a good time. I've heard horror stories of people who have. I mean, I've heard horror stories of people who the Game Master sits on one side of the room and the players are on the other, and they're not connected because the Game Master wanted that separation. No. And that's just weird to me we're a bit like that like when we play but it's not because of separation it's because my front room isn't big enough to get a table in so we're all kind of scattered around in a in a but in a horseshoe no i've i've had a few very oppositional gms and i don't get it i really don't get it one of the things i don't get most about it is as the gm you have unlimited power in this world true so why is killing your party a brag you're asking the wrong person if you're after a tpk just keep throwing enemies at them until they die there's no skill in that 
Now, the skill that I certainly found when I was writing LARP adventures, the skill is that they succeed with no resources left, one of them unconscious, having been bleeding to death until another player got there in time. No spells left, no magic left, every single one of them battered, bruised and bloody, at least two broken limbs in the group, armour shattered, shields broken and maybe one death if someone had been stupid and like made made a real serious mistake and got an isolated and taken out in those circumstances then fair enough but i would never write to kill i would just write to hurt because that is the the sense of achievement you get with that success snatched at that last minute and you come through you know knackered <laughs> broken it's like we did it we got there yes yes he's yeah. especially more again, especially I think maybe more so LARP than tabletop because you are there. It is your actual adrenaline that's thundering through your veins. There, it's your arm that's knackered and weary from swinging that battle axe and getting that shield in the way. It's you whose throat's dry from screaming war cries or frantically casting spell vocals and just then staggering in. Especially because we we crowned off most of our LARP events with like an in-character tavern. So then stagger into that in-character tavern, storm over, get your tankard out crack open a cider, sit down in front of the fire and go, let me tell you about the crazy stuff that's went on today. You will not believe how many zombies. Just so many zombies, y'all. So many zombies. My goal as a game master has always been to have players do that, do exactly what you just said. Mm. Afterwards, sit down and talk about how cool the game was and how much fun they had, where if I kill the whole party, afterwards they're just going to complain about how unfair it was, and it wasn't fun. Yeah. I would rather have them excited coming back with their character sheet in hand going, all right, what's next? Or I've got this item that you've hinted is helpful, but I feel like knowing you, it's not really helpful. Like what, what is this? <laughs> they're intrigued by it and they want to know more mm. about the story and not me killing them. Well, and I find that if your players are that enthused, you are as well. You want to run the next game. You want to get those things out there. You want to push those secrets. Whereas if your players aren't engaged for whatever reason, it almost becomes a, a chore to run. It becomes an obligation rather than a pleasure. So it's it's very much a two-way street. You've got to keep them hungry because that then keeps you hungry for more yourself. Just that. that. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. It's It's a rush for those that haven't ever had it to see your players leave the table excited and ready and wanting the next game like when the players are sitting down going cool when can we play next that's exciting to me yes absolutely or when when you kind of go and that's where we're finishing it for today and there's just the sigh around the table and goes oh yes oh and slump down in their chairs and drop the pencils and like oh oh or, or even better no no, 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 no. That's not where we're finishing it for today. That is not appropriate. Carry on. Just five more minutes. Nope. Which no, can no. be fun, especially with a podcast, just to end on cliffhangers. Yes. We've done that one time. We had a big one. And for those that yes. haven't listened, I don't want to spoil yes. it. Let's just say that something happened and people were like, oh my God, did you guys really do this? And everybody had to wait two weeks. <laughs> yes. I say, I'm not the biggest on social media. But I had a lot of people sending me messages going, did you really, did, did, is this, huh? When I finished that episode, I sat there in silence on my bus into work for a good 10 minutes, just staring out the window going, no, 
no, no, no, no, no, no. And then I went back and I re-listened to like the last five minutes. And I was like, hmm. no, 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 no. That's not how this works. What's really interesting about that scene, I as a game master had no control or idea. That was something the player came up with in the moment. So even for me, I was like, huh, Yeah, interesting. Let's see how this plays <laughs> out. Did, did you just look at your notes and go, get the red pen out, start crossing through things? Yeah. <laughs> that, that was a fun little scene to plan out, too, because that was one that took a lot of time with the, some of the players and not all the players. It was fun. But mm. since we are a Star Wars podcast, we should probably switch over and talk about a few things with Star Wars. I mean, probably. <laughs> it only seems fair, doesn't it? <laughs> I have to assume Star Wars is just as big over there as it is here. I mean, uh, yeah, it's massive. All the conventions, people cosplaying, all that stuff, I'm assuming, is, was worldwide. Uh, although, stiff competition from Doctor Who. Really? Our, our very own homegrown. That's, uh, that's massive not over here. That. Yeah. I could see that. Because Doctor yeah. Who is huge over here, too. Hmm. Really, the big yeah. competition here is Star Trek, which for me growing up, yeah. my mom's a Trekkie. I'm a Star Wars person. Luckily, we never really compared the two or argued she likes the drama and the less less action that the old star trek used to be yeah and she had a big crush on uh captain kirk there which i think most w- women did ah uh, <laughs> so who did <laughs> oh. um yeah so yeah doctor who was massive it's a bit of a weird place i think star wars over here because we had the films, but there wasn't... Whereas with Trek being episodic and, and a serial, you got a lot more exposure to Trek than you did to Star Wars. Okay. But certainly like amongst my peer group, Star Wars was the big event. So Trek was, was like what tided you over until Star Wars. I didn't get into Trek that much. I loved the original series. I saw a bit of Next Gen and like a little bit of Voyager, and that was about it. A lot of my mates are massive Trekkies, massive, massive, massive Trekkies. Mm-hmm. But I still think that Doctor Who probably is the bigger spectacle over here. And I think that's probably because it's ours. Oh, for sure. If you know what I mean, because Star Wars is yours. Star Trek is yours. Battlestar Galactica, that's American. All the Jerry Anderson stuff that I grew up with. That was all American, but Doctor Who, that's ours. That's our terrible rubbish sci-fi. And like, it was so very Britishly bad as well. I was a massive Hovian as a kid, and then I kind of fell out of it. And I've never got quite got back into it, really. But it's still like the big one. Mo- a lot of my friends, that's probably still the... If they had to pick one of the franchises, it would probably still be Who over here. That makes sense. Again, a lot of my peer group... Um, being of a similar age to me, we kind of got a bit burned by the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, because the original trilogy, that mm-hmm. was my dad um, and his generation. And then we got the prequels and having rewatched them all recently, because I've been on, well, I've been on Tales from Heidi and Way discussing them with Ben and, and with others. Mm-hmm. I now find a lot more to like in those films than I did the first time round. I have said this many times about the prequels. You have a great story told not so great. 
the dialogue isn't good. Yes. The acting is forced and not genuine. Yes. Not for everybody. There's some good acting in it, but for the most part, you're like, ugh, that was cheesy. Uh, a lot of the choices for some of the species and how they acted and stuff triggered people. Mm, see, yeah, mm-hmm. well, yeah, Phantom Menace particularly. My big takeaway from the prequels is if you take out Anakin entirely, what you get is a damn fine series of Obi-Wan films. Um, Attack of the Clones is, is my favourite of the prequel trilogy because it's a fantastic espionage war thriller that just occasionally has Anakin in there pouting. See, and I look at them as great uh, Palpatine stories. Yes, also, yeah. I really do. I've had this discussion with people in the past, you know, who is the greatest Star Wars villain? And I will stand firm on Palpatine. Here's a guy who laid siege to his own planet to take over the Empire. Yeah. Well, take over the Republic and become the Empire. Just a consummate chess player, isn't he? Yeah. Other people argue, oh no, you know, Vader did this, Vader did that. And I'm like, but Palpatine controlled Vader. Yeah. Vader is an extremely scary implement. Yes. But especially by the end, that's what he is. He is an implement. Yep. He's a mailed fist. But it's it's palps his hand in that gauntlet. As you say, that's the redeeming thing, I think, of the prequels, because you see that machination <laughs> of just every piece being gently put in place and every little push and every little move and every little sly wink and obfuscation to that end game and it's lovely so well done and if you look at maul in the phantom menace then into the clone wars cartoon maul was the beginning of what vader became yes palpatine just continued his training with maul and and morphed that into vader yes they were both just go kill go make people afraid you're really never going to take my place you're just going to be my instrument of fear yeah that's why I said, I think they're great story, just not told the greatest. I, yeah. I, yeah, there's a lot of potential there, but... Who knows, in 10, 15 years, maybe Disney will redo them. And they'll have somebody else come in and do it better. I, I don't know. It'd be interesting. They remake a lot of movies, so maybe we'll get those remade. And then everybody will scream, it's just Disney grabbing more cash. Let them. By this point, they already have enough money, but they have like the two franchises I love dearly, three franchises I love dearly, just let them have it. I, I, I'm not fighting it anymore. <laughs> I could just have my money. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I, I do have one other question for you. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is going to be, a, I think, potentially a, a real doozy. It's one I thought of last night. This has nothing to do with Star Wars, nothing to do with role playing. In America, in our history books, we talk about the American Revolution. Mm. How's that taught over there? Or is it even taught? Um, I mean, it is, but not. it's not that important, if you get me. Oh, absolutely. Um, what was mostly taught in casting my mind back to, <laughs> to school, because obviously at college uh, and at university, your, what is taught is a much broader church. But uh, like primary school was a stuff that I most loved, which is your classics. Okay. So ancient Rome, ancient Greece, e- Egypt, basically all your Bronze Age stuff okay. um, that I really, really loved. Uh, high school, it was World War Two and the Tudors and the Stuarts and the War of the Roses. That was what we were taught. That was our history. We didn't even really talk too much about like the Victorian era, which considering the impact that's had on the, like, it, it, and the Georgian area, considering the impact that that's had on how our society is still structured 
to a degree over here. Okay. Yeah, the Tudors and the Stuarts, then like leading into like the Elizabethan times, that was the big thrust. And unfortunately, it, it just bored the hell out of me. Oh. I wanted to go back and do Greece and Rome and. I'm with you there. Or Norse, or even. Yeah, yeah. Even the old Egyptian stuff really fascinates me. Yeah. It was just something that my wife and I were sitting around last night and I was like, I have no idea. Because. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's touched on. Because it is part of like the, the, I think it's Victorian. Is it? I don't even know. You know, it's, we're going back a long um, time now. My memory's not what it is. We're going back t- 20 odd years. Um, but yeah. Your answer is exactly what I said to my wife. I thought it, it's more of a moment in history, not so much like, yeah. like here we have July 4th and, you know, we celebrate yeah. this. And I, I always just kind of go, okay, that's cool. It was just, it was just a thought. It was kind yeah. of an interesting idea for me. I think one of the reasons might be, I mean, first of all, because that is a massively important thing for America, because that is when you became mm-hmm. your own country. But the other thing is, you're, it's a very young country over there. <laughs> yes. Whereas we've been having, like, in, we've been being invaded and then invading out for 2,000 or so years if not more because our history that i started being taught was when the romans came over and kicked in the gauls and Boudicca and basically took over most of central england and then you had all the, the vikings the saxons the franks the norman invasions all that sort of stuff and that's still like living history i mean i went to um, shrewsbury not that long ago which is a pretty small and largely unremarkable place but like shrewsbury castle is something like nearly a thousand years old or something crazy like that. Oxford University, I think it is, is older than like the Aztec civilization was. Wow. That came and went since that university was founded. Really? I see. So. Yeah, we could go on. For, I think we could go on for hours on this stuff because it, it fascinates oh, me. I, like I said, I grew up in a small town and mm. I, I moved, you know, to college to kind of a, it's a mid-sized city, I would call it. Mm. You know, Grand Rapids is not a, a New York city, but we're also not you know, too small either. So I've always kind of stayed in a smaller area and everybody around this area is very similar in how they talk, how they look, how they dress. So to me, it's very fascinating to talk about other areas that have different ideas and different thoughts. And All right. Okay. Let's quickly mm-hmm. jump back on, is, is one of your other questions, but like keeping on a slightly political bent, but bring it back to Star Wars since, you know, okay. we have spent most of this Star Wars chat not talking Star Wars. Okay, Jedi. Good? Bad? Indifferent? Do you think that there were some who showed what a Jedi should have been at their best, or have they lost their path? Because I suppose that's really relevant for you, given that Redemption is Clone Wars era. So... And and you have two Jedi's in the show, so it's an interesting. Although again, like Corell and, and Nasinda, not especially Corell really, not your run of the mill Jedi either. So true. How's that been for you to balance? It's interesting because I do view the Jedi as more of a political entity that is trying to influence the galaxy. On their beliefs. They're not saying, you know, hey, what are your beliefs? Let's see how we can merge. It's very much they come in and go, here's what's right. Yes. And I try to play around with that in 
different games. And in Within Redemption, we do a little bit. But at the same time, it's a real balance because the players don't want to get too much into the politics of things. So it's a real balance. Yeah. I've tried to bring some of it in to help push the story, but I don't want that to become the story. Yeah. If that makes sense. So it's a real, real balance. Well, it was always there a bit from even from the very start when um, the, the party were torn between both sides. Because, of course, they did an awful lot of work for the Separatists right at the very start. And that was a lot of me as a game master saying, you want to be a merchant ship during the Clone Wars, both sides are going to try to use you. There's no way of getting around it the way that the story is laid out. Yeah. Because every planet has to choose either Separatist, Republic, or you're in hut space. So you guys don't want to go work for the hut, so you're going to be doing one of the two. I did that a little bit just to also help with the role-playing, because you have a Jedi here who finds out she's working for the Separatists. How is that going to go? I genuinely thought for a while that they were going to go with the Separatists. Honestly, had no idea where they were going to go. And part of it, too, like I threw in the uh, Potentium Force users just to add a twist and another option for the players to go. Mm. And the Potentiums are the Force users that... They don't believe the Force is good or evil. It's just kind of an energy source and watering. Watering their theories down real mm. real small, but I threw that in there just to give the player another option. So if Kaylee decided she didn't want to go completely the Jedi route, this gave her another option for the character. And it was fun to roleplay. Now you have a character they all think is evil, but is she really? And then she tries to you know twist things, but then they find out she's not really evil. She's being used to... like. That's the advantage of running a long-term game. Yeah. You can put those layers within layers in there, and especially with your NPCs. It gives you a chance to make the NPCs more than just a name that they kill or a name that they talk to. Yeah. I really struggle with running long-term campaigns. I am very much a winget GM. It helps, actually, with the podcast because because I'm recording it and I do my own editing, I remember what I've done and who my NPCs are and what's going on, whereas... When I'm normally running a game, if none of my players are taking notes, it is very hit and miss if I remember what I've said and what's going on outside of like my broader overarching idea. I think doing the, the podcast has helped me as a game master because I can listen to what was said and done and mm. the highs and the lows, so to speak. I certainly think it's helped me get better at descriptions and framing what's going on because my listeners won't see my exaggerated hand gestures or a map that I throw up on Chromecast or something that I share or a whiteboard. I've got to be a bit better at not only using theatre of the mind for me, but for everybody else so they can see what I'm trying to help them see. So that also helps me remember roughly what's going on. But that's another reason why we're doing Force Majeure kind of as as jumping campaigns, Mm -hmm. because I can write and run my kind of short arc. I'm quite good at running short arcs, but I can do that. And then while Ed's running his campaign, I can get my head into gear going, right, well, now that this has happened and this is the starting point, where do I need them to get to for the end of the next act? Hmm. Right, I need them to end up there. What's some of the things that can happen on the way? What are the things they're likely to do? And again, going back to the Jedi, with me, I, with the exception of Plo Koon, who to me is what a Jedi should be, Plo Koon is the, is the Jedi. That's funny. He is my favourite Jedi. 
he's great, but he's also the only one that really embodies for me what the Jedi Code is supposed to be, because he's compassionate, but not driven by his emotions. He's merciful, but just, you know, he's, he's serene, but not cold. Whereas you look at some of the other ones and they are, Obi-Wan's not so bad in the Clone Wars era, but even he sometimes loses it a little bit. But Plo is just that thing. I've taken a bit of a cynical view of the Jedi in my game and my world because, well, basically of what you've said, they go in and they impose what they think the, the force, the will of the force is. And I'm not a huge fan of that sort of imposition. And what's interesting in my campaign, one of the players who is uh, Lassa, one of the characters who is a very practical, techie character. Mm-hmm. She's only just started to accept that the Force exists and that she has some Force powers, but she is from a CIS background. And she's like, nope, everything I've heard or read about the Jedi tells me that that is not the way I want to go. But all the other Force users I've encountered so far have also been not the way I want to go. There must be another route. She's almost, she's hunting for anything like the Potentium, like the Night Sisters, mm-hmm. uh, like the Grey Jedi. She's hot, desperate for that third way. So I'm starting to drop breadcrumbs because I think that's going to be an interesting story, really. I do feel a lot like the Jedi are not truly neutral and they're not truly open minded. And one of the things I always find funny about the Jedi, you know, you suppress your emotions so that way you can be one with the Force, but then you still want to move up within the Jedi Order. But to do that, you have to have that desire to succeed, which is an emotion. Yeah. So you can't suppress your emotions and still move up within the Jedi. So if you were the ideal Jedi, nobody would ever become anything but a Padawan. Yeah. That's an interesting, long, long thought process I've gone down, usually over a few uh, drinks. Yeah. And the other thing that they never seem to get is if you destroy one half, how is that balance? I've had that debate too of what truly would bring the force in balance. Well, if the Jedi exists, then the Sith have to exist. Yeah. Otherwise, you have to destroy both. Yeah. And that's why, oddly, I think that the, um, the setting that the FFG games are set in, kind of, so the Inquisitoris have been disbanded. You've got Vader and Palpatine on one side and no one else on the other. Well, I suppose you've got Luke on the other. But even when that ends, before he founds the new Jedi Academy and you've got that big old block of time between Jedi and The Force Awakens, mm-hmm. which is a lovely, lovely, very rich era to mine for, for ideas, that's almost balancing the Force because there are no Jedi and there are no Sith. There are just Force users going with their instincts. Hmm. Yeah, never really thought about it that way. I've always just thought that, you know, there are always going to be a Jedi and, and Sith. Can't have one without the other. Which, to me, the, both of their group's goal is to destroy the other one. So they're always going to be a, a war. Yeah, that, the, the wheel still spins. Which would be interesting if they do an episode 10, mm. who's the new bad guy. Yeah. Because they kind of ended 9 with Rey kind of bearing both lightsabers and igniting her own, saying she's going to go her own way, but yet she has the Jedi uh, manuscripts or books from years ago. Mm. So is she going to go that way? Well, if you have her, you have to have the counterpart then 
which they covered in one of the Clone Wars episodes where you had the, the brother, sister, father. Yeah. Yeah. Mortis. Yes. Not very good with names or memory. Probably because I'm getting old. <laughs> I, it's only because I watched that episode recently. We're, we're rewatching them over here because um, we never got season six over here. Mm. Um, or if we did, it was like in a very brief period of time before I got into Star Wars. And when I was like after I started the show and I went, I probably need to get more into the lore and start collecting the Clone Wars and Rebels, you couldn't get season six. It was a US Netflix exclusive. Really? So, um, yeah. So when rewatching them, because this season seven, but this is two brand new seasons for me. So that's, that's an episode we've recently done in our kind of gradual rewatch of, of the Clone Wars. So that's the only reason it kind of really sprung to mind. So you have a different, I just assumed Netflix was the same everywhere. No, no, it's region lock, very regional. Really? Um, same with Disney Plus. We've only just got The Mandalorian and it's still not fully out. It's still being released weekly. Why would they do it different? Because of Brexit and licensing regulations and stuff over here, uh, which was very frustrating because the internet is terrible for spoiling. Like The Mandalorian, it was terrible. It, UK newspapers that weren't supposed to have seen The Mandalorian were spoiling The Mandalorian. So, um, That's crazy. yeah, no, we've still not had it fully released over here. But, like, we've got a load of BBC stuff and Channel 4, like, British comedy, which I don't think appears on your Netflix. Um, And, Hmm. like, we didn't have Bob's Burgers or South Park for it. In fact, I I still don't think we do. They're now on Amazon Prime, but they were on Netflix because when I've been abroad, we've been able to watch them in, like, Turkey. Because in Turkey, they had um, Bob's Burgers was unlocked. Yeah. In my mind, Netflix is almost a website you go to and it's the same everywhere. Yeah, no regional variations, which is a shame because you're missing out on some top-notch British comedy over there. See, Netflix doesn't do a lot of the BBC comedy, but they do a lot of the BBC dramas. Like, I really like Ripper Street. That one was one of my wife and I's favorites. It's not a happy-go-lucky show at all. It is not, but it's very, very good. Yes, I love how they really draw you into that time period and how everything looks and i really liked that one i think we just watched dracula which i was yeah yeah it was an interesting retelling um did you get the did you get sherlock over there the um bandit cumberbatch yeah yes yep that was the next one i I like did you get Whitechapel, which was kind of a modern day ripper historian played by steve pemberton who was one like league of gentlemen and uh, that's that's quite an interesting. It might be. Uh, honestly, we shifted from the heavy dramas to some lighter stuff for a little bit. Yeah, just because we were so much into the Ripper Street and those type of shows that I was like, ah, I think I need a break. Like, let's watch yes. some lighter, sillier something stuff. F- something fluffy, just to take the take the edge off. Yeah, yeah. Especially with being home as much as we are now, we wanted a little lighter, a little less heavy just because right now we're so hammered with everything that's going on and all the crazy decisions that are being made but the infinite hellscape where time has lost all meaning <laughs> i tell you if it was if it wasn't for podcast releases i wouldn't know what day of the week i'm on i'm so glad i follow so many because that's like <laughs> okay right it's monday it's either me or you that's how i know it's a monday right tuesday is it magpies or is it not okay right if it's not then i don't know if it's a tuesday until wednesday comes along and it's a What's going on? I'm similar. As bad as it sounds, I don't listen to a ton of podcasts, 
And part of the reason is, is the time I have to listen to them is when I'm working, but I also do quality control and problem solving. So if there's an in-depth story or anything, I can't follow both. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff I listen to is just two guys talking about whatever topic I decide I want to listen to for the day. And I've, I've listened to some, everything from how wolves and rabbits uh, change the ecology in an area to, I've tried to listen to some politics stuff and I can't, I can't follow the no. level of it. But it, no, I, it just wears on me. I can't listen to podcasts at work because I need to be able to concentrate and um, I, I can't, I can listen to music and think, mm-hmm. or, but I can't like listen to a podcast particularly and think, or I can't listen to a podcast and read. Um, interestingly, I think this is because, you know, the whole, um, do you have a mind's eye? Are you a void head? Do you, how, what do you see when you're told to picture an apple? I'm a void, but I narrate. I have an internal voice that describes it rather than, than a, a visual thing. And I think that's a problem because like, I process everything audially. So trying to okay. think or read while listening to a, a podcast, I just, I can't do it. So I, I normally listen on my commute, but obviously with no commute because I'm working from home at the moment. <laughs> um, also a key worker, unfortunately. But I do a bit of time on an exercise bike before and after my working day to bookend my work day. So I know like this is when I start, this is when I finish. And that means I can listen to, I've got about an hour to an hour and 10 minutes worth of episode listening time a day. Mm-hmm. So I usually just manage to cram in at least something a day, but I am behind on my backlog. Yeah. For me, I work in an office that normally has about 60 people in it and it's an open room with six, seven foot walls, but all that noise comes over the top. For me, I yeah. have to put something in my ears. Otherwise my brain tries to listen to all the conversations around me Yeah, and it's, I've described it. It's like, it's like that guy in the movie the the noise keeps getting louder and louder and louder and eventually they just scream stop yeah that's how my day would go if i didn't have something in my ears half the time it just becomes background noise but it blocks everything else out for me so that's why i quite like music especially stuff i've listened to before because it's it's quite soothing and it just cuts out that signal that extra signal it replaces it with something that i i'm comfortable with just kind of having carry me on yeah, without trying to listen into this conversation or that conversation. Yeah. Sometimes I listen to music, but mostly it's just people talking about something or uh, an audio book. As long as it's one voice, even if they're yeah, you're all right. doing their voices, I'm still okay. That's just how my crazy brain works. I've had it all my life, so I've learned how to deal with it. Yes. Well, anything else that pops into your mind that we should talk about or could talk about or any I've come up with a couple of crazy questions. Um, I mean, I suppose the only real one, and I'm, I'm sure you've covered this in one of the table chats you've done over over on Redemption, but it's been a while, and my memory, much like your own, isn't quite as <laughs> as sharp as it used to be. So, like, I got into Star Wars, especially the FFG Star Wars, really heavily through listening to podcasts, mm-hmm. and that then kind of got me into into the whole kind of the whole kind of scene. And then it was listening to to you and Dicer Brains, and I got like Mikey into them as well, and we were like, we can do this, I reckon, mm-hmm. and that's what kind of drove us to to do it in the first place. With you, what was your kind of first exposure to the FFG Star Wars system? How did you get involved, and how did that translate to you deciding not only to do a podcast but to do a Star Wars podcast? 
We played Star Wars FFG a couple times, and the second time we played it, it clicked. And myself and Kaylee and uh, Michael would get together. Originally, it was once a year. We would pick one day on a Saturday, and we'd start at like 10 in the morning, and we'd game till like 10 or 11 at night. It was just- Oh, I love those times. Yeah, one yeah. monster role-playing session. Well, we did that uh, shortly before we started the podcast, and I made the comment, is there a way we could do something like this once a month? Instead of once a year, let's do it once a month and maybe not go from 11 to 11, but maybe we go 11 to like four or five. Because mm. for me, you know, my son was just getting into uh, scouts and getting into some more activities at school. So it was more difficult for me to do a weekly game and a lot easier for mm. me just to do one big monthly game. Yeah. So we worked that out. And at the same time, I was starting to listen to some podcast because at the time I had an hour commute to work. So I started listening to Kevin Smith does quite a few. Mm. And I remember listening to him on uh, Hollywood Babylon mm. and he made a comment, ah, podcasting's easy. All it takes is time. And that clicked in my head. And I said, you know, there are other role-playing podcasts, which I was listening to other role-playing podcasts at the time. And I just said to our group, Hey, these role-playing podcasts are great. This guy who's this big-time director, writer, says podcasting's easy. Let's do it. And I convinced the group to try it. And Kevin Smith's right. It does take time. Yes. But I usually warn people, it takes more time than you think. Yeah. And it's actually not difficult work, but it can be very tedious, and it can be yeah. frustrating at times. Yes. Especially editing. Oh, yes. I've helped a couple of new shows kind of get their um get up to speed and get going mostly because i got help from kaylee and ross when i started off mm -hmm. and i'm a firm believer in paying it forward and that's the one thing that that like the new people i've been talking to about it and they're like oh how long does it take to edit like a 45 minute episode i'm like 14 hours yeah. 14 hours 14 hours why does it take 14 hours edit one and then come back and tell me why it takes 14 hours Oh, right. Okay, then. <laughs> and, and that's what a I long, tell people. Long, long time. I tell people for every hour that we put out is going to be anywhere from eight to 10 hours of editing and generally two hours of recording. Yeah. And when you say that, people go, oh, really? Well, we do a lot of trimming out excess this and that and adding in the sound effects. But I mean, as you know, the sound effects, you have to make sure they're royalty free. Yep. Because if I use something that's straight off of actual. Star Wars, then Disney could come back and shut us down. So you have to be real specific with what sound effects you're using and making sure they're royalty free. Uh, sometimes I go in and make my own. There's a few sites I go to that's very time consuming. Yeah. Uh, I think the one that took us the longest is our musical episode. Mm, yes. Because we wrote all those songs, we wrote the music. I went into, I think it's SoundCloud or some website. The one song I, I did, I used to did put air quotes, but I mm. picked all the beats and the music for the background. And then I wrote out the, the lyrics that a one very monotone spoke. <laughs> and I did that because Chris does not have a singing voice. <laughs> Chris might have one good note he can hit and he doesn't know which one it is. <laughs> so singing was not going to be a forte. I mean, I even spent time trying to find an auto tuner 
just to throw my voice through because mm. I was curious to hear what it sounded like. I couldn't find one that didn't just digitize it and make me sound like a robot. I'm like I can do that on my own. I don't need anything yeah. like that. That's one less editing step. You should have gone for it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was rough. I'll be, I'll be honest. It was rough. <laughs> editing definitely can be tough. There's other things to think about with it. And I mean, as well as you know, you have to be aware of what's going on in the world when you podcast. You can't put things in there that are, uh, what's the word? Too controversial. Too controversial or triggers for people, which is fine. I don't put those things in my game anyways, so that's not too big of a deal for me. But I know other shows that do spend a lot of time thinking about, is this going to hit this or that? Or Yeah. It's definitely, I will tell people, it can become work. And that's the biggest drawback to podcasting. And you just have to find a way to still keep it fun. Yeah. And doing that can sometimes be work. Yes. It's something that if anybody's truly interested in doing, I tell them you better have a love for it because you're going to spend a lot more time on it than you think. (laughs) Yes. It's not a a weekend hobby. It's it's almost, um, yeah, almost a second job, isn't it? A part-time job sometimes. I mean, there are podcasts out there that just throw a microphone in the center of the table. And they literally release whatever happens. I have a very hard time following those because you get a lot of table chatter and talking over each other. And I very much lose where the story is and where the characters are. So for me, I much prefer the shows that do edit things down and make it a lot more uh, easier for me to follow and a lot cleaner and smoother. I guess that's more the the way I would think of it. Speaking of that, why ice mining? You guys started off with ice mining. Why, why ice mining originally was, uh, it was just an idea I had, really. I wanted my players isolated. Okay. Um, I wanted them, and I, I wanted to really instill a sense of, yeah, kind of very much isolation and being a very small speck in a big place, which is why it was basically a prison world, and this is the only settlement on it, with a couple of free people kind of around doing their own thing. But mostly it was just because I thought it sounded cool and it looked cool in in my head um, when I was coming up with it. I am assured I don't really know an awful lot about Star Wars and that's my real kind of shocking admission here. I never read any of the Legends books. I never, I've not read any of the comics. I don't really troll Wikipedia unless it's something specifically I'm looking for. I'm a bit better now. Mm-hmm. And like I've now I've seen the Clone Wars I've I've seen uh, Rebels I've now read some of the books and I've got a better hook on it. But when I started off, I had seen the six films, okay, uh, and that was it. And as with quite a few of the things that happen in my game, both on and off mic, my kind of subconscious will have found a thing that is relevant and cool and a little bit niche, and it will have been put in my games by my by my subconscious. And it's only much afterwards when people go, oh, and I really like that cool thing because it's this little bit of niche, like, lore or trivia, Mm -hmm. and I really like that call-out. And I just go, yeah, it's definitely that. So to answer your question, why ice mining, you'll find out hopefully in Chapter 3, and it's definitely that. That is definitely the plan I always had. (laughs) (laughs) And to be honest with you, 
I didn't know much about Star Wars before we started the podcast either. I spent a lot of time on Wikipedia afterwards and a lot of time downloading books on tape to listen to when we go on trips and stuff. I started re-listening to your guys' show because I binge things. I'll listen to it for two months, then give, give it a pause, and then come back for two months. thought that to myself the other day. I was like, I wonder if there was a reason why he chose ice mining to start with. Like, is there something in the lore that I don't know about, or... It turns out there is, but I didn't know about it either at the time. Um, so it's all worked out quite nicely. Nice. <laughs> but you, you hit the mark with making everything feel very isolated and very small part of a bigger picture, like you said. Like, it was very, very well done. I enjoy it. Yeah, thank you very much. That's, that's very high praise indeed. Oh, you guys do a great job. And uh, the fun thing for me is... I sometimes when I listen to shows like yours, I picture the players around the table at the same time as the, the characters and stuff like that. And it's easy for me to do that with your guys' show. I, I almost picture you guys sitting around a table just having a few drinks and just enjoying each other. And that's yeah. One thing that definitely helps me enjoy shows and something I think you guys hit spot on. Yeah, I think it helps like I've known Mikey for a very long time, probably, yeah, probably pushing 20 years or so. I've known Ed for about 15. Mm. Um, it's Mim and Ross that are newcomers to like my circle of friends, really. But I've known Mim for a couple of years, and then since she started dating Mikey, and, and then subsequently married, mm. she joined in a lot of my, like, I run a monthly game, much like you did, mm -hmm. um, or do, um, with like my regular kind of core gaming group. But I started branching out and running like odd games here and there with with smaller people. Usually, our current gaming group's like seven or eight people, and wow. sometimes I just want to run a game for four. Mm -hmm. So, like Mikey, so Mim tended to join the smaller games, and Ross has known Ed and Mikey and Mim for a while as well. So, yeah, we we get on pretty well, and I, yeah, I think there is that 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 friendship does help because you kind of know also how to bounce off people and what. When you want something picking up, you know who to put it down next to. Yes. For puns or for prompts or for, like, you know what, what buttons to push, yeah. both with your fellow players and with a GM, to get the best out of each other. Yes. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And that's been, that's been fun for us. You know, like, mm. you know, May recently joining the show. And I say recently within know, six, seven months, something like that. I'm not good with that time frame. I didn't know May very well. I'd played one other game with her on another show and bringing her in, it was like, okay, where are your boundaries? Where are you comfortable playing? Yeah. And what takes you out of your comfort zone? And just having those conversations with her has helped me a lot. Uh, same thing when Andy came aboard, you know, I didn't mm -hmm. know Andy that well, but I've known Mike and Kaylee for a long time. So I definitely know how to push their buttons. Yeah. That was something I was going to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, because, yeah, because Andy joined at a point where it kind of made sense, because with Nate leaving, it seemed a real kind of pivot moment for the show. Do you carry on? Do you stop? And if you carry on, do you carry on with just Mike and Kaylee? Or, or do you get someone else in? So it kind of, it felt natural for Andy to kind of join at that point, uh, especially because she'd already been introduced uh, and kind of building up that bigger role. Like, when May joined, was that something that you'd been discussing, like, oh, let's get another player in? Or did it just kind of happen organically? It happened organically. 
The group just felt that she meshed really well with us and that her style and the energy she would bring would take the show to the next mm. phase, so to speak, that we need to go into. Yeah. We were getting to a point where the Tazi-Isla relationship, I don't want to use the term it was getting tired, but I didn't want to keep falling on that as being the main driving point. Yeah. I wanted something else for the group to work with. Yeah. It's hard to have A1 and D4 drive storylines because they're droids. They are kind of PCs, but they're still mine. So I don't want them to become the center because they're the game master's PCs. So it's a weird. Yeah. Honestly, that's the weirdest dynamic for me to balance is what to do with those two. I have that to an extent with Prinkle and especially with Pijak mm-hmm. um, in my campaign because Pijak is very much the mentor figure, but I also don't want him to take agency away. And you manage that really, really well. Oh, on a related note, when D4 gets tired of all the abuse <laughs> and the lack of love, right? There is home for him. There is home for him on Keena Bale. We will look after him. You come and live with Tychus and Roy. <laughs> we will treat him right. <laughs> Poor old D4. D4 has the same fate A1 did. Supposed to be a a bad guy that the crew just shoots out the airlock and never sees again. But the crew went, wait, what is your backstory? And I'm like, oh, I used to work for Darth Plagueis. Oh, we got to show you the ways to be and and make you better. And I'm like, wait. Also, we desperately need a medic at the moment. (laughs) Our Nautilus wandered off. (laughs) We keep getting shot. (laughs) And that was my original thought was, okay, we'll just leave him in the back. Like, he'll just become like a wall ornament. You push a button, he comes out, fixes you, and goes back to sleep. But the crew said, no, you can't do that because we've already freed one droid. We're known for freeing others. So I was like, oh, Chris did not think Uh the long-term effects of this. <laughs> then I started just using him as a little comic relief to scare everybody because he's always in the room. Mm. Like, yeah, never pay attention to him. Padded shoes. Yeah. So, uh, but I guess back to the original question uh, bringing May on was just kind of a it worked and we knew it worked. So we just wanted to keep it going. And we talked with May and she said, yeah, she can fit it in her schedule with us and that she wanted to join. And she's definitely little more recently worked with me on some new ideas and bringing some of her thoughts in which is really nice to have yeah. another person given how that last season ended it, yeah yeah hmm i am excited to see what happens next and also because i do have some questions about that but this is not the <laughs> appropriate venue for it really but yeah yeah because I, I'm kind of torn because there's some stuff I desperately want to know, but I don't want to spoil it for me, let alone for any bugger else. So I'm just going to have to bite my lip and wait and see what you bring out of the uh, out of the bag. But yeah, I'm really excited to see what happens um, when the story picks up. We've already recorded a few. We're trying to get a little backlog and then we'll start releasing some things. And since I'm not able to do what I normally do, because normally, my son and I, we train a lot of uh, martial arts with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Boy Scout stuff. So normally, most weeknights, I I come home from work, pick the kid up, and we go for another two, three hours. Yeah. Right now, I'm like, I don't have anything to do at night. And I'm like, I want to do a bunch of these interview things that I've always wanted to do. So now I'm starting to do them. But at the same time, I don't want to just release like 10 episodes of me talking to people because then people get kind of 
bored with it and want the story back. So we're working on balancing getting the backlog and some bonus episodes. So it'll be fun. I've just edited the last episode I had in my backlog today and we're recording again next Sunday. But it is like the first time we've I suppose you've got a bit of an advantage because May and Andy, they both they dial in, don't they? They play remotely. Yes. I never have. Up until like the the ongoing hellscape happened, I had never ever played remotely. Mm. The only experience I'd ever had of any kind of remote anything was occasionally turning up on Tales of the Hydean Way and like giving Ben a headache. <laughs> so like I've now had to work out how like Jitsi works because Google Hangouts is very, very twitchy sometimes and like Facebook video calling will work for some but not for other people and oh all that this and then trying to find now I've got my weekend suddenly free but I can't run a game every Saturday. I will go crazy. I'm not in college anymore. I don't have that that drive. Especially because it seems I'm running a different game and different system every Saturday. I'm like, oh, which one am I on at the moment? Yeah. So yeah, trying to plug everything in. I'm finding it difficult to do the the remote organisation. So, are you have you been recording entirely remotely then since the lockdown kicked in? I suppose you must have been. Yes. Luckily, with the video chat, with through Discord, mm. doesn't affect me too much. It's harder for me to not do the video chat. Because as a GM, I'm very visual with yeah. watching cues with the players, trying to see yeah. when do they lean forward. That tells me they're excited. When do they lean back and kind of cross their arms? Okay, they're not liking this thread. If I don't have those visuals, then it's a little more difficult for me. Once that problem starts popping into my head of, are they liking this? Are they liking this? That's where the, the little self-doubt creeps into the back of my head and starts whispering yeah. to me. And then I start going, okay, are you guys liking this? Which then leads to the whole, yes, we're fine, which yeah. the, the normal, normal social uh, anxiety that yeah. I get. I tried running a few games over audio only, and I found not only did I really struggle with that, because much like yourself, I'm a, I'm a visual cues GM, but also my players did. And you'd have like long periods of silence and then everyone talking over <laughs> each other because they, they couldn't read each other's visual cues. Yeah. So yeah, I've just had to learn. Because I've done several other podcasts remotely, so I've learned how to kind of manage that obstacles. I think it helps me because I don't have seven games I'm running. I've only got two. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the Redemption one and a Shadow of the Demon Lord one I'm doing with some friends. Mm. But that one is my uh, ode to IP, I call it. So all the intellectual mm. properties that I like, I'm throwing into this story. So I've got Dresden file yeah. stuff in there. I've got stuff from that Ripper Street show I was just talking about. like. We've played, I think, three sessions, and there's been different things I've thrown in some of my favorite other stories. And that one I went into and told the players that's what I was going to do, and they all agreed, great, when I recognize something, I'm not going to let my character know that. Mm. So yes. the Dresden Files, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I am. Okay. Yeah, I love them. They all have, I love them. all five of them have been given one of the coins. Oh. Oh, not only that, they all agreed to merge with them. <laughs> well shadow of the demon lord you, you you take what power you can for the brief time that you're going to have it for yep. <laughs> absolutely but two of the players know exactly what the storyline is with those but still through gameplay went my character desperately wants power so yes and the coins are telling me it's going to be for the betterment of the world so i believe them yeah, it's going to get rough for them but that's the game that they wanted 
and that's the game I wanted to yeah. run. So we already all agreed we're not running the typical we're all heroes. We're running the yeah we, we might all die. The ends justify the means, even if the 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 uh, the means are our own deaths. Mm-hmm. One way or another, this is this. But it's again that's one that works because the players agree that that's the type of game they want. And it's not one we're recording. We're just doing it for fun. It's uh, my beer and pretzels game, I call it. Yeah. Which is fun. I enjoy those games. Yeah. Well, um, this is going to be a long one for you to edit. I, I've got to say, g- given that I, I listened to the um, the solo play one, where there was like loads of you on, and that was about an hour. And I thought, now nah, this will be this will be about the same length of time. But it's just been fun rambling on and, and chatting. Oh, absolutely. Talking shop. I could do this for really? hours, but probably should get going because people yes. aren't going to want to listen to three hours of talk. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for joining me on this. Tell everybody where they can reach you and you know tell more about your show. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. So um, I can be found on Twitter at Madam Beltane, which is M-A-D-D-A-M b-e-l-t-a-i-n-e and you can find force majeure uh on twitter and instagram and facebook and everything else at force majeure pod uh we are on google play spotify stitcher apple podcast if you can find wherever you find things to please your ears you can find our show so we have just started our fourth season so we have returned to the shadows of the jedi we have handy little season recaps so you can jump in we hope you like it um thank you again for having us on uh, having me on and letting me yeah it's talk shop it's been great yes and i'm chris the game master for redemption uh easiest way to find me is on twitter uh, it's burlu underscore chris thanks for listening everybody until next time i think it's the same see you later yep see you later thanks everyone Redemption is played using the Star Wars role-playing game system by Fantasy Flight Games and Lucas Books. If you enjoy Redemption, please reach out to us on social media. Our Facebook and Twitter pages can be found at RedemptionPod, and we have our website as well, RedemptionPodcast.com. Please look for us on Instagram as well. We recently started an account with Redemption Podcast. Review the show for us on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcasting applications you may use. This does help people locate the podcast, and it does spread the word for us so more people can hear our thrilling story. If you're enjoying the story that Redemption tells and would like to offer us some support, we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com redemption. All funds collected from the page are used to help us upgrade our equipment and make sure we're telling uh, the best story we can with the best quality equipment that we can. Thank you very much.